Welcome to Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today we're breaking down Ghosts of Valyria, this season's third episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. We'll conclude our podcast with the latest Star Trek news. But before we begin, please remember our analysis contains spoilers. So if you haven't yet watched this episode, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. Now, Gary, let's start off with the synopsis for Ghosts of Illyria. If I must. Okay, Captain Pike, Spock, number one, and other Enterprise crew members comprise a landing crew investigating an abandoned colony on Hetemet 9. The colony had been inhabited by the Illyrians, a humanoid race, who used genetic modification to enhance their species. Although the Illyrians had wanted to join the Federation, they had been prohibited from doing so by the Federation's prohibition against genetic enhancement. Aware an ion storm was fast approaching, Pike and Una realized they should return to the ship. The captain leaves to find Spock in one of the colony's surviving structures. There... He sees Ensign Lance looking at assorted bottles that seem to have been used for scientific research. Pike gestures for him to move out. With the exception of Pike and Spock, Una assembles the landing crew at the rendezvous point and signals transporter officer Kyle to beam them up to the ship. However, due to the approaching ion storm, he has difficulty getting a lock on them until engineering chief Hammer provides the transporter with auxiliary power. Pike finds Spock, who says he has found a cache of journals detailing the Illyrian's research. The two attempt to transport to the ship, but instead must immediately seek shelter after Kyle is unable to get a lock on them. With Pike and Spock trapped on the planet, Una takes charge of the Enterprise. On the Enterprise, Lieutenant Ortegas comes across Ensign Lance acting strangely in one of the corridors. He has removed some of his clothing and rubs his face against one of the light panels, saying he needs to feel the light on his skin. Suddenly, he breaks the panel with his forehead. Ortegas pulls him back and calls for security. In her quarters, Una finds herself drawn to the light emanating from a lamp. She then tears at her tunic and her skin begins to glow momentarily. After this occurrence, she contacts Dr. Mbanga and learns half of the landing party were there due to injuries suffered as they sought to engage with light sources more intensely. After running tests, the only abnormality he found was that their body had a deficiency of vitamin D. Number one confers with Hammer, who denied any issue with the biofilters during the transport. He claimed the biofilters would have removed any contaminants, including any substance it did not recognize. Una informs Pike of the situation, but is not able to keep in contact with him due to the ion storm. In the conference room, number one asks the computer for records on the Illyrian settlement, but the computer is unable to provide any information pertinent to the crisis. Security officer La'an enters the room and exhibits a distaste for the Illyrians since they readily use genetic enhancement technology. 
As a child, La'an had endured bullying due to her relation to Khan Noonien Singh, a mass murderer who had been genetically enhanced. La'an suddenly begins to exhibit symptoms of light deprivation similar to those afflicted members of the landing party. Una notifies Dr. Mbenga. In a library where they sought shelter, Pike paces anxiously, worried about the contagion on the ship. He stops pacing after Spock says it will not help the situation. By studying their research, Spock learned the Illyrians had attempted to de-engineer themselves in an attempt to gain admittance to the Federation. However, their attempt had failed. Suddenly, the two hear a shrieking sound. They look outside and see flying creatures that seem to be made of light. In the cadets' bunk room, Uhura is awakened by two cadets who have simulated a miniature sun to expose themselves to the light. When Uhura ends the simulation, the cadets are angered by her action. Hammer comes to sickbay to check out the emergency metal medical transporter for irregularities. Mbenga vehemently protests Hammer's intrusion and says the ANR will disturb his research. When the lights flicker due to Hammer's work, the patients are riled. Hammer reluctantly stops his analysis and leaves. Una questions Uhura about her experience with the other cadets to try to figure out why the communications officers had not been infected. She learns Uhura preferred to sleep in the dark within her closed bunk. Una surmises the contagion must travel by light waves, so the darkness had protected Uhura from succumbing to the disease. Una shares her theory with Mbenga and Chapel. She suggests they sedate their patients so they will not be further agitated by the absence of light. Una orders lights to be lowered to a minimum to inhibit the spread of the contagion. Then, number one is alerted to an override to her blackout order in the transporter room. There she finds Hammer has transported a part of the planet's mantle to the ship with the intent of touching it to his skin. Una uses a phaser to stun him, then picks him up and places him over her shoulder with little noticeable effort. She takes him to the sick bay where Chapel is amazed by her feet. Una reveals to Mbenga and Chapel that she is an Illyrium and asks that they make an antidote from her blood. Mbenga tells her they had not found any special properties in her blood to, to create such an antidote since it must have burned out of her system after the infection was eradicated. The doctor informs Una he had been infected and lays down on a bed in his office. Una still thinks she is the key to stopping the contagion. Mbenga responds that she seems to place a lot of faith in Starfleet to do the right thing. However, prejudices continue to manifest themselves even as they travel amongst the stars. He assures Una he would use her despite Starfleet's regulations. However... Because her blood contains no antibodies to fight the contagion, nothing could be done. He then asks her to sedate him before he has the opportunity to act irrationally. She complied, but then learned of a potential warp core breach. On the planet, 
Spock and Pike have barricaded the library door in an attempt to stop the light creatures from breaking in. The ion storm intensifies and the creatures are able to finally breach the door. Spock and Pike fall to the floor. Surprisingly, the creatures hover over them, shielding them from the effects of the storm, saving their lives. Una finds Laan in the engineering where she is attempting to bring down the containment field to flood the ship with light. Angered that Una never told her she had been genetically enhanced, she bitterly denounces number one for lying to her. The two fight until Una is able to knock out the security officer with a punch. Radiation levels rise within the room, triggering Una's healing function, which also affects Laan. Una takes Laan to the sickbay, where Chapel is able to create an antidote from the security officer's blood. On the planet, the ion storm finally clears the area. Spock surmises many of the colonists died of a mysterious contagion that caused them to have a compulsion for light. Some went insane, others died, and others may have found themselves bonded with the electromagnetic particles of an ion storm to become the creatures that saved their lives. Ironically, Spock deduced, if the colonists had not tried to de-engineer themselves to be acceptable for Federation membership, they may have had the biological properties within them to have successfully resisted the disease that ultimately killed them. Una fights Lon in the recreation room. She attempts to reconcile with the security officer. Laan admits she still holds a bit of a grudge that Una had kept her identity hidden from her. Number one told her she understood the reasons why there were prohibitions against genetic enhancements due to the eugenics wars. However, the Illyrians did not use augmentation to dominate, but to be in harmony with nature. Instead of terraforming a planet they sought to colonize, they would genetically engineer themselves to be in harmony with the conditions on the planet. Una admits she had hidden her true identity from many people. However, her motivations were, were to join Starfleet, which would not admit Illyrians to their core. Una goes to Pike to inform him of her true identity as an Illyrian. Taking off her combat, she told him she was resigning her commission and submitting herself for disciplinary action. Pike refused to accept her resignation because she defied every stereotype the Federation held about her people. He told her he would deal with Starfleet if they ever found out about her secret. Number one went to sickbay to confront Mbenga about the news that she had learned from Hemmer. The doctor was preserving something in the medical pattern buffer. That's why he did not want the engineering chief to run a diagnostic. Mbenga confessed he had hidden his young daughter, Rukia, in the pattern buffer. The girl had been diagnosed with cyanokemia and given only 12 weeks to live since there was no known cure. The only chance to save her life was to preserve her in the pattern buffer where she would not age and the disease would not progress. 
He hoped one day their travels might come across a cure. Mbenga seemed to accept he could no longer use the pattern buffer for this purpose. He asked Una for the opportunity to say goodbye to his daughter. However, she surprised him by saying they would provide a dedicated power source to the pattern buffer so he would not have to end his daughter's life. Back in her quarters, Una dictated to her personal log that both she and Mbenga had hidden something from other crew members. Although Pike said he would defend her, she wondered if he would have done the same if her performance had not been exemplary. She asked, when will it be enough to just be an Illyrian? After a pause, she then orders the computer to delete her log entry. Yeah, this was a really good episode. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I thought it was very layered. and, and Oh, as, quite layered. I mean, that's why our synopsis was so long, because there was so much in it. Yeah. And it was hard to leave anything out. Yeah, it wasn't a 35-minute episode of anything, was it? <laughs> okay, so anyway. Let's move on to the credits. Yes, please. All right. So Ghost of Illyria was written by Akela Cooper and Bill Walkoff. It was directed by Leslie Hope. Cooper was brought on as a co-executive producer and writer for this season of Strange New Worlds. She has written for and produced several series over the last 10 years, including Grimm, The 100, American Horror Story, Luke Cage, and Jupiter's Legacy for Netflix. Cooper also wrote the screenplay and story for the film Malignant by Justin Lin. Bill Walkoff is a supervising producer for Strange New Worlds. Prior to that, he has been a writer-creator working in television, animation, and film. He was a writer and story editor on Once Upon a Time. His work in animation has included working on Star Wars Rebels and serving as the co-head writer for Disney's XD's Tron Uprising. Leslie Hope is the Canadian-born actress, director, and producer with dual citizenship in the U.S. and Canada. I think that's pretty neat. Yeah. Um, she's also a friend of Anson Mounts. They've worked before. Oh, that's great. She has directed several episodes of television, including Snowpiercer, Lost in Space, The Order, Murdoch Mysteries, Van Helsing, Ghost Wars, and Aftermath. Hope was the artistic director of the Wilton Project, a Los Angeles-based writers-driven theater company she founded with Charlie Stratton. In 2019, she produced the feature film, Lie Exposed. Okay, so let's get into the analysis. From the trailer for this week's episode, it looked as if we were getting a traditional disease of the week story, similar to the type that was a staple of the original series, beginning with The Naked Time and the Deadly Years episodes. But Ghosts of Illyria is much more thought thoughtful in its examination of how a communicable illness spread in the same way stereotypes and prejudice do through ignorance. Absolutely. Additionally, Ghost provides us with some much needed backstory for another underdeveloped legacy character. This time, it was Enterprise's female first officer, Lieutenant Commander Una Chin Riley. 
Outside of the Short Treks episode Q&A, this is the most attention number one has received to date. We get several references to previous moments in Trek canon that directly connect to her background as well as La'an's while touching on some larger topics. So we thought the theme this week has to be stereotypes. Absolutely. We learned from Una, La'an, and Pike the harm caused by stigmatizing groups of people based on perceptions of their differences from the majority. From the beginning, there are clues that number one is oddly uncomfortable on this abandoned colony of genetically modified Illyrians. Pike's comments that it's shaken everyone, including his usually unfazed first officer. But she just brushes it off as being disturbed by inconclusive evidence to figure out what happened to the colonists before they all vanished. As with everything we've ever seen her do, Una is presented as an ultra-efficient Starfleet officer. She is dedicated to doing her best no matter how difficult the task. This tracks back to our introduction to the character. In the cage, it's number one who is emotionless and laser focused on the task at hand, while a young Spock is laughing at the singing flowers. Una is the one who is passionless. When the contagion takes down all of the other members of the landing party, Una immediately puts Hemmer on discovering how the infection was brought aboard. Later on, she enlists La'an in her investigation for a solution. La'an immediately is suspects the Illyria's use of genetic manipulation as the cause of the, the disease. She begins to espouse suspicions about the technology and quotes Federation regulations that prohibit use of their tech or membership in the union. La'an displays the same biased attitude she claims was inflicted on her. Called Augments and Monsters, La'an speaks to the mistreatment she received from other children growing up as a descendant of the murderous dictator Khan Noonien Singh. When she voices her own opposition to genetic augmentation, it reflects the same racist hatred that her peers use to justify their torture of her. While infected by the virus, La'an discovers Una is an Illyrian. She calls the first officer an abomination, referring to the woman she attributes to saving her life as unnatural. That's right. She is so twisted by hatred that after a La'an recovers from the disease, Una asks her, was that the illness talking or her? And La'an has to admit that it's both. Mm. So number one isn't the only main member of the Strange New World's crew dealing with long-held secrets and emotional damage. Surprisingly, Dr. Mbenga is responsible for the medical transporter malfunction that allowed the virus onto the ship in the first place, basically because he didn't allow anyone to do basic security updates on the transporter when the ship was in space dock. Why? Well, because he was hiding his young daughter in the transporter's pattern buffer, essentially holding her in stasis in order to keep her disease from advancing while he searches for a cure amongst the stars. And then there's La'an, 
who's feeling some kind of way about the secrets Una's been keeping about her identity. But after facing years worth of persecution and abuse herself, simply for being connected to one of the most famous augments of all, her hatred for those who are genetically altered is certainly understandable, if not entirely fair. And yet, though it seems as though the two women have essentially patched things up by the end of the episode, I doubt this is the last time we'll hear about her past. On the planet's surface, Pike is also misinterpreting the actions of others. During the Iron Storm, he and Spock observed plasma take the form of humans floating along the Iron Storm at its, as it advances toward the colony structures. He believes they're a threat, yet when the archival chamber is breached by the storm and these plasma creatures break in, Pike and Spock recoil on the floor only to discover these beings shielding them from the effects of the storm. After the storm passes, Pike realizes that they may have misread the actions of these creatures and ponders why they didn't do the same for the colonists. Spock deduces that the beings were once some of the colonists. An archive canister ejects itself to the, get their attention in it, Spock learns that the colonists were reverse engineering their augmentation only to be vulnerable to the same disease that afflicted the Enterprise crew. Therefore, most of them died while others were transformed into these plasma beings, trapped in a non-corporeal form for eternity. Their attempt to change their very being to satisfy the Federation's prejudice sealed their fate. The irony of that isn't lost on Pike, but it doesn't lead him to a greater level of awareness at that moment. One of the things that great fiction does is that it takes a traditional story outcome and flips our expectations on their head, giving us a fresh take, highlighting a different perspective. His self-critique of the exceptional person being excluded was an extremely mature and important take on the matter. Strange New Worlds took such a leap with the incorporation of two scenes, one between Pike and Una, where she tells her captain that she is Illyrian. Una offers to resign effective immediately. Pike declines her resignation. And when she informs him that to do so will jeopardize his standing in the Federation, Pike ignores the threat. Instead, he enthusiastically lavishes praise on his first officer, as well as acknowledges his new understanding that Illyrians have been misunderstood. His experiences on the planet during the Ion Storm has taught him that her genetic makeup is not a curse or something to warrant punishment. She is a hero, and Pike would welcome any opportunity to report that fact. The other scene is a monologue by number one, as she records a personal log entry. In it, she is grateful for the support Pike voiced for her, but the incident has prompted her to question if his strong support is because she is an exceptional in her position and, more recently, a hero. Una openly wonders if Pike's support is a form of preferential treatment. 
She questions how the Federation would respond to her if she hadn't succeeded at saving the ship at all, because it remains unclear. That's because her worthiness appears to be based on her usefulness rather than the idea that in a free and open society, she deserves the same rights as any other individual, regardless whether they saved anyone or were especially good at their job. It feels to Una that she is receiving this protection because she is exceptional, not because that it is an inalienable right. This episode told a clear tale showing how marginalized people are always measured by a different yardstick. They are required not to be competent. They have to be excellent to be considered acceptable. Acceptable. Yeah, and I would say that, you know, both Gary and I, as most of our listeners know, are African-Americans. And this really hit home for us. Oh, absolutely. Because this has happened to us time and time again. Right. You can't, there is no way that average is acceptable. Whatever position you obtain is because you have to go beyond expectations. Right, right. You have to have more recognition. You have to have more achievements. You have to have more awards just to be seen as on the same level as some of your peers who are different than you. Right. And um, for instance, if that's, if you're not uh, a member of a marginalized, you know, race or ethnicity, just think about Barack Obama and, and just look at all of his credentials stacked up against most presidents of the United States. I mean, it far exceeds uh, the level, you know, the education and the accomplishments of many of our presidents, yet, you know, his credentials are still, have been called into question. Right, right. I mean, and, and in this episode, that's the situation that Una finds herself in. If you see the beginning of this, beginning of it, when she gets back to the Enterprise, she's extremely competent at her job. Yes, yes. But that's just a guarantee because of who she is. She's devoted herself so much to her her work in the Federation to Starfleet, yes. that she wants to be exemplary. She wants to show that they're, that she's worthy of being here. And the reality is, it's, it's the Federation who has the problem. They're using their own historical experiences to influence how they look at anybody yes. who uses genetic augmentation. So their, their reaction to her is based on how they their species behave and not how her species is behaving. Yeah. And we get a clue to her personality actually in the first episode when, you know, the uh, the enterprise is being retrofitted and that was a that was a time that most people were going on vacation or visiting family. And where is she? She on another mission. She's on a mission, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. All right. So the only false note in this episode was the reveal that Dr. Mbenga is concealing a secret. His daughter, Rukia, is critically ill. She's being kept in the medical transporter pattern buffer until he can find a cure. He beams her out regularly to make sure her pattern doesn't deteriorate. This is an extremely tragic storyline, so much so that it deserved more time to breathe before the mystery of the pattern buffer uh, could be explained. One 
or two more episodes would have given us more time to bond with Mbenga prior to pulling on our hearts with the fate of his daughter's life. Gary will talk more about the pattern buffers during uh, the Easter egg segment. Two things should be apparent from this episode. The secrets kept by Una and Dr. Mbenga are going to be revisited eventually. It may not be this season, maybe next season, but but they have laid out two secrets that are being closely held and a small, small group of people know that information. That's right. That's not going to last forever. That's just the way secrets work in stories. That's right. I can see how Una's status in Starfleet, along with the Illyrian augmentation ban, could possibly surface again somewhere throughout this season, or like I said, the next. Likewise, Dr. Mbenga and his daughter's illness is so tragic, it's demanding another installment to further the story along. You, now that we know that his daughter has been held in the pattern buffer in sickbay, mm-hmm. that the, the, the humanity of her actually being forced to be stored away, for lack of a better term, is going to continue to pull on us. Yes. And I think that we're it's that's again that story is going to need to be evolved in some fashion and resolved at some point. The writing has been solid across these first few episodes. The writers seem to have a strong understanding of what show they are actually producing. Also, the characters have been consistent in each episode. That's usually one of the weaknesses of a new series in which. Writers may not be on the same page with the direction each character is taking. They also seem to lack faith in the ability of the actors to assist them in learning about the characters based on how those actors interpret them. This is not the case for Strange New Worlds. All in all, Ghosts of Valyria was another strong episode. Yeah. We're very much enjoying this season. Oh, yeah, definitely. And if if it keeps on this pace, this could be the best first season of any Star Trek show. I agree with you. All right. Okay. So let's move on into bits and pieces. Yeah. So our first element of bits and pieces is actually comes from um, memory beta. You know, Adele and I usually refer to something back to memory alpha, which is the canon Star Trek Wiki. There's also a memory beta, which is non-canon Star Trek Wiki that includes information that's captured in comic books, novels, video games, um, card games, all other kind of sources that haven't been incorporated into the TV shows or films. That's that's where the canon elements come from. So according to memory beta, in the original series novel, Vulcan's Glory by the famous DC Fontana, number one is introduced as Illyrian, but later claimed to be human raised on an Illyrian colony. Um, Due to the stigma attached to the Illyrian's genetic engineering. Now, that's been incorporated into this episode, so now we have that as a confirmed part of her Backstory, yeah. And I suspect we may find more information coming from the novels as the shows progress because of probably Kirsten Bear's influence since she's a novelist who's now also the um, archivist and go-to person for all Star Trek canon information. Right. 
And also, Ensign Lance, who is the one who brings the virus on board, he is this week's red shirt. Yeah, red shirts don't get killed in, in Strange New Worlds. Uh, well, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Anyway. Not yet. When he disrobes, you can see him discarding a red top jersey before he pushes his head through a plate of glass. Also, if you noticed, the cadets sleep in a joint suite-like quarters that resemble those on lower decks. So we now see that, yeah, maybe they're saving. When you have a, a crew of hundreds or thousands, that it's more efficient to put them in those kind of bunker-type spaces. Right, configuration. Yeah, yeah, so I think... And, I, and it does give them some privacy. It before, does, yeah. We saw cadets quarters on a few of the movies they're just like open bunks yeah, yeah. and so at least this way they can you know close it so that they can have again some privacy right this episode also confirms for us that la'an is related to khan which everybody knew uh but this this was confirmed during a private conversation between her and una at this point uh that it appears that only Pike and Number One know the significance of her surname. Other crew members have referred to Lon as Lieutenant Noonan. Mm-hmm. Noonan. Mm-hmm. So far, Number One is the only person to have spoken her full name, and Pike was reading a file on her on her in an episode, uh, the actually the first episode during his shuttle f- flight to the Enterprise. Right. So. I suspect he has her full yes. bio as yeah, well. He has her dossier. Yeah, 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 yeah. So let's now move into the Easter eggs. Yeah. So um, Gary, the again, this episode of Strange New Worlds continues to give us various callbacks and references to Star Trek to the Star Trek universe. Why don't you start off? Right. As I said earlier, I would return back to the pattern buffer because much like the ion storms, which we saw in this episode, pattern buffers have come up repeatedly in Star Trek shows. Um, it's just so you know, the pattern buffer is a key component with transporters, holodecks, and replicator systems. For this Easter egg, I'm going to focus on tr- transporter issues. And there are m- numerous ones that we can we can refer to, beginning on um, the Star Trek: The Enterprise. If we're going chronologically, Emery Erickson in twenty one fifty four, the inventor of the transporter, came aboard the Enterprise NX one under the guise of testing a new transporter method, which supposedly had unlimited range. However. It was discovered that Erickson was actually attempting to rescue his son, Quinn, whose pattern was trapped within a subspace bubble. Mm -hmm. Before the pattern degraded irrevocably, Erickson was successful at retrieving his son, but Quinn died seconds after his father had transported him aboard the ship. Emery felt it was better for Quinn to be dead than somewhere between life and death. And that episode was called Dataless. Next on our um, hit list for pattern buffer incidents is one that we saw in Star Trek The Motion Picture. In 2070s, during the V'jirax incident, Commander Will Decker and Lieutenant Cleary did repair the pattern buffers, but it malfunctioned while Cleary was replacing the transporter sensor. 
Yeoman Ran attempts to beam Commander Sonic and a female officer aboard the Enterprise, but they were both killed. Scotty later repaired the pattern buffer and the sensor in time to beam Ilya and Leonard McCoy aboard, as we saw. But that was a tragic death because their patterns were actually merged together when they were finally formed on the, on the transporter pad. It was pretty horrible. Mm-hmm. The only known occurrence of a person surviving in a buffer longer than the theoretical maximum was Captain Montgomery Scott on board the USS Genelin. Following the Genelin's crash landing on a Dyson Sphere, Scotty, with the help of Matt Franklin, was able to store his pattern in the buffer for 75 years. This was achieved by disabling the rematerialization subroutine, connecting the phase conductors to the emitter array, bypassing the override, and locking the buffer into a continuous diagnostic cycle. Although Scotty's pattern suffered less than a .003 degradation and was successfully recovered by Lieutenant Commander Jordy LaForge on the USS Enterprise D in 2369, Franklin, unfortunately, was irretrievable as one of the inducers had failed, causing a 53% degradation in his pattern. And this was seen in the TNG episode, Relics. And finally, in 3190, while investigating a subspace riff, the crew of the USS Discovery, except for Captain Michael Burnham, were maintained in the ship's pattern buffers for more than 10 minutes in order to save them from the ship's disintegration by the galactic barrier particles. And this was in the Discovery episode, Stormy Weather. All right. So now I want to talk about my Easter egg. You go right ahead. This centers around Una's secret and how they... There's some uh, comparisons to DS9 episodes. Ooh! Okay, so Una's confession to Pike that she is genetically enhanced as an Illyrian mirrors the revelation Dr. Bashir made to Captain Sisko on Deep Space Nine. In In the season five episode, Dr. Bashir, I presume, the space station doctor informed Sisko his genes have had been engineered as a child to enhance his intellectual and physical potential. The reveal allowed the show's writers more options for storylines for Bashir that made his character much more complex and interesting than his initial portrayal as a superficial masher, especially toward Jazia's Dex, who spurned his unwanted advances. There are, there are two other connections to DS9 as well. Bashir's confession is made necessary when he is compelled to undergo a comprehensive medical profile that will uncover his secret. Like Bashir, Dr. Mbenga is forced to admit a secret he had regarding his daughter. Only in the case of the Enterprise's physician, Mbenga's secret endangers the lives of the crew. The other DS9 connection had to do with Una's deletion of her personal log. This is reminiscent of the season six DS9 episode, In the Pale Moonlight, 
in which Captain Sisko orders his personal log deleted after detailing actions that were, let's say, not aligned with Starfleet policy. Well, yes. Bordering on war crimes. <laughs> Bordering on potential war crimes, yeah. I guess so. When you fake evidence and then end up killing a, the a officer of a alien species, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. it was kind of dicey. Kind of dicey. Okay, so we're going to talk, uh, move now to Star Trek news, but we only have one item this week. And that is only the interviews that we saw on the Ready Room. The latest installment of the Ready Room began with a featurette on the legacy characters that are explained in Strange New Worlds. This was followed by an interview Will Wheaton conducted with Strange New Worlds' Rebecca Romaine and Akila Cooper, the co-executive producer and co-writer of this week's episode. This episode ended with a featurette discussing how La'an is connected to Khan Noonien Singh, followed by a trailer for next week's episode of Strange New Worlds. Yep. So in closing, we'll be back next week with our review of episode four of Star Trek Strange New Worlds entitled Memento Mori. But before signing off, we would like to remind you to share a link to Age of Discovery with people you know who enjoys Star Trek as well. Until that time... Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter and Instagram at Star Trek AOD, at our Facebook page, Star Trek AOD, on our website, Star Trek AOD.net, where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and other aspects of the show. Also, email the show at Star Trek AOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper.